Amen. <clears throat> Thanks for leading us, Adam. Um, my name is Norton. I'm one of the pastors here at New Denver. Uh, a couple of quick things. We usually take up an offering at this time in our service, and so obviously we can't do that. And so if you normally give um, or donate or support um, everything we do at New Denver Church, um, if you don't do that online, now's a great time to switch to doing that online. There's lots of information on our website to be able to do that, or if you need help, let one of us know. Um, also, as Stephen said in the very beginning, um, in case you joined the, the service late and you missed the announcement, we're going to take communion together in a few moments near the end of the service. Um, so you can take a minute to go to your kitchen and grab some bread or crackers. I just have a cracker here today um, and some juice or wine if you have that. Uh, we totally forgot to get juice uh, this week, so um, I just made some sort of plain tea here that kind of looks not really like juice, but it'll work. So um, just grab something and get those things ready. Um, so today uh, is Palm Sunday, and which means it's the last Sunday really of Lent. And um, today I want to answer a really deep and really profound and really theological and life-changing question. And I have three people um, or three types or groups of people in mind. And if you're one of these people, then this is a really important question to ask. Uh, the first group of people is students. So if you're a middle school student or a high school student or a college age student, um, the question we're gonna discuss may not seem relevant to you right now in your life because you're just trying to figure out how to get by in school, especially with all this crazy online stuff happening, how to have fun with your friends when you're still at home, right? You're thinking about those kind of things, but I promise this is one of the most important questions that you could ever ask in your life. Uh, the second group of people um, is anyone who's in the process of constructing your faith right now. So maybe you grew up going to church uh, some, maybe you grew up and you didn't go to church much at all, um, but you're in the season of your life where you're either re-engaging church and faith um, again, or maybe you're engaging it for the very first time in a meaningful way, and you're trying to figure out what you believe because you've thrown a whole lot of stuff out or you've deconstructed a whole lot of things, um, and, and now you're trying to put it all together and maybe you've been coming to New Denver for a few months, maybe you've even been coming for a few years, but there's still a whole bunch of stuff in the Bible or about Jesus or about faith that, that just doesn't make sense or you're not comfortable with how it fits together. And you're trying to figure out how to make that happen. And so I wanna help you engage this very central question uh, this morning. But there's a third group, and that's those of us who have been going to church most of our lives. In other words, you know your way around church, you know your way around the Bible. Um, you know what we're going to talk about next Sunday on Easter already, right? Um, you know the words to some of the old hymns that we often sing. Um, you know the secret handshake when you show up on Sunday morning, right? Um, kidding. We don't really have secret handshakes. Um, looks like five people just dropped off the Zoom call. We don't have secret handshakes. Uh, but you've been going to church most of your life. And when I tell you what question we're going to discuss, you're going to think you already know the best answer. And I want to challenge you today as well, because I think some of our traditional church answers to this question are incomplete. And they might even lead us farther away from who God really is than towards him. 
So with all that buildup, uh, here's the question. I mentioned it last week. Why did Jesus have to die? So this is Good Friday coming up in just a few days when we remember his crucifixion. And today we remember, as Adam said, him going into Jerusalem towards that. And of the four books that we have about Jesus's life, Roughly a third of those books describe the events leading up to and including his death on the cross. His death is a central part of Jesus' story. It's a central part of the Christian faith. The cross is the central symbol of Christianity. The Apostle Paul said that when he traveled around the world, the only message that he shared with people was about Christ crucified. That was his whole message. That was his whole life. So Jesus's death is central to the Christian faith. And yet every Good Friday, when we read one of the crucifixion narratives, which is what we often do as a community of faith, I'm reminded of how horrible his death was. And I don't just mean the physical aspects of it, but everything, the pain, the abandonment, the betrayal, the shame, the injustice. And I often come back to this question, Why did it have to be this way? Why did Jesus really have to die? Now, there are several layers to this question. And so first, I want to ask an even simpler question. It's simply, why did Jesus die? In other words, who or what specifically killed Jesus? And I have a really short one-sentence answer from you, and it's straight from the historical documents and eyewitness accounts of his death. Jesus died because the people in power were threatened by his power. So we have four different accounts of of Jesus's life and what led to his death. And they all describe that Jesus was a Jewish rabbi and a miracle worker in the first century AD in Israel, which was under the authority of Rome at the time, and that he attracted a following. And the things that he said and the things that he did regarding the power that he had and the kind of kingdom that he was launching, it threatened the people in power, specifically the Jewish leadership in about 30 AD and the Roman authorities who were overseeing Israel at the time. And so the Jewish leaders and the Roman authorities felt so threatened that they decided to conspire together to eliminate Jesus. And that's the most clear and simple human explanation for what happened on Good Friday. And we need to remember that. That's where we have to start. That's why we read the crucifixion narrative every Good Friday, to remember Jesus's message and his power was a threat to the people in power. And as a result, they killed him. And in that sense, Jesus is like many victims of injustice in human history. There have been many martyrs, many who have pushed against the dominant powers of our world. And as a result, the powers pushed back. The powers put them in their place. The powers threw them in jail or exiled them, or in the case of Jesus, even executed them. Jeremiah, Joan of Arc, Galileo, Mahatma Gandhi, Nelson Mandela. I could go on and on and on. But what makes Jesus different and what makes Jesus unique is that he seemingly had the power to crush his enemies if he had wanted, right? 
I mean, we have story after story of Jesus doing miracles, healing people, walking on water, calming the storm. We have story after story of Jesus always getting the better of his enemies, right? Uh, outsmarting the people who were opposing him. We have story after story of Jesus easily able to get the crowds on his side. So why on Good Friday does Jesus surrender to the Jewish and the Roman authorities and not once challenge them? Why on Good Friday does Jesus not gather his followers and inspire his crowds to support him and to oppose Pontius Pilate instead? Why on Good Friday does Jesus not just do one simple miracle to show us who he really was and to show the people there? Why doesn't he just zap the Jewish high priest or, or zap the Roman authorities or, or zap the soldiers who are about to crucify him? If Jesus had the power to do all of those things, why doesn't he? Why does Jesus seem to allow everything that happened to him on Good Friday as if it was all part of some greater plan or purpose? There's really no other explanation, right? I mean, if he was popular, if he was powerful, if he could have easily prevented his execution, then the only reason that he didn't is because it must have been part of some greater plan or purpose. And that's what one of his followers, Peter, concluded. About two months after Jesus was executed, Peter was addressing his fellow Jews right there in Jerusalem where everything had happened. And look at what Peter says. Fellow Israelites, Listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death and nailing him to the cross. So Peter is saying, Look, Jesus was powerful and amazing. He was doing God's work. We all saw that. But then you, and Peter says you. He doesn't say we, which is kind of bold. He says you, with the help of wicked men. And when he says wicked men, he means the Romans. The term in Greek literally means men who do not live according to the Jewish law. That means the Romans. So you, with the help of the Romans, you crucified him. And the only way this makes sense for Peter is that it was all part of God's plan, that, that God knew ahead of time that the people in power would be threatened by Jesus's power and that they would try to eliminate him. And so God used that as part of his deliberate plan and for his greater purposes. In fact, the night that Jesus was betrayed, before everything happened, he spent some time alone with God in a garden. You can go read it for yourself. He was in the Garden of Gethsemane. And, and I'm just going to paraphrase here. Jesus is praying to God and he says, is there anything else? Is there any other way to do the work that we need to do? And God, in his silence, shook his head. And Jesus says, okay, let's finish the work. 
that he sent me to do. And it was moments later that he was arrested and tried, and convicted, and then executed. And so what was the work that Jesus came to do? Specifically, what was the plan? What was the purpose? Why did Jesus allow himself to be killed? Why did he give up his life? Why did Jesus have to die? Well, as I said earlier, this question is at the center of our faith. But the answer might not be what you think it is. So, so let me just summarize how the earliest followers of Jesus, Peter and Paul and John and the other writers of the New Testament, let me summarize for you how they answered this question. They wrote a whole bunch of stuff about this, and we don't have time to read all of the verses and passages that they wrote. So I'm just going to pull it all together this morning and try to summarize for you why and how they answered this question. And I want to encourage you to write this down so you can reflect on it this holy week. Here's what they said in answer to the question, why did Jesus have to die? Jesus died to offer forgiveness and reconciliation. So um, the problem is sin. And that's a very Bible-sounding word. It just means we do things that are wrong. Sometimes we do them towards ourselves. We mistreat ourselves. Most often, it's mistreating other people. But, but if God is like our father and he created us and he told us how to treat ourselves with love and dignity and he told us how to treat others with love and dignity, but we don't do that, then our mistreatment of ourselves and our mistreatment of others is also a sin against him. In fact, maybe foundationally it's against him. And so the Bible sometimes uses this image of a courtroom that our sin is like a crime that we've committed or a law that we've broken. And it's not just one thing, right? It's a whole bunch of stuff. It's a lifetime of choices where we've mistreated ourselves and we've mistreated others and we mistreated God, right? And so we've done all of these things and they need to be rectified. They need to be dealt with. Like in, like in any courtroom, you know, somebody steals your phone or someone steals your credit card or someone steals your car, right? What you wanna hear is a judge to say that what they did was wrong and that they have to pay for it. And so the Bible uses this courtroom language and even a debt kind of language, that a debt has been created, and to say that our sin created that debt and that Jesus paid that debt for our sins by giving his life on the cross. And in doing so, our sins are forgiven so that we can go free, we can leave the courtroom, we don't have to pay the debt because Jesus paid it for us. Now, sometimes the Bible uses more relational language, that God is more like a father than a judge, and that our sins are like little acts of rebellion against our parents or against our father, and they pull us farther and farther and farther away from him. And so the problem really is that we're alienated from God. It's that our relationship is, is broken and it needs to be repaired. But you can't repair a relationship until you deal with the thing that broke the relationship, which is still our sin and our rebellion. So there's a debt 
But in this case, it's not described as a debt. It's more like a gap that has to be traversed. Somebody, when there's a break in a relationship, someone has to move towards the other person. Someone has to come and say, I'm sorry, it was my fault. And so Jesus is doing that for us on the cross. He is absorbing and taking upon himself human sin in all of its ugliness. And that's what the authorities represented that day when they killed Jesus, pride and arrogance and self-righteousness and deceit and anger and injustice and violence. And as Jesus absorbs all of that on himself as he's hanging on the cross that day, do you remember what he says? Father, not judge, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they're doing. You see, Jesus through his death, is offering us forgiveness and reconciliation with the Father. And I think, and I deeply believe, that there's something within every single one of us that longs for forgiveness and reconciliation. Now, our pride often gets in the way, and we don't want to admit it, but it's still there. We long for it from one another. We long for it from those closest to us. If there's somebody in our family or someone that we're really close to and there's been a conflict or a pain or a hurt or something that has broken the relationship, we long for forgiveness and reconciliation. And ultimately, we long for it from God. And so if you happen to be listening today and you've never truly experienced that with God, you've never really experienced full forgiveness and reconciliation you need to know it's found in Jesus. But here's the deal. You have to accept it. It's an offer of forgiveness and reconciliation that you have to accept. Now, you don't have to work for it. In fact, you can't accomplish it yourself. Forgiveness is a gift given to you. Reconciliation happens because God came to you. So this isn't something about what you can do. It's about something that Jesus has done, but you still have to accept it. And so let me give you an image at the, at the risk of minimizing all of this. Forgiveness and reconciliation is like, a... hey, you guys still there? Now we are. I lost you for a second. What happened? I did. Sorry, forgiveness is like a what? Wow, Zoom. right in the highest point of the sermon. In the highest point. <laughs> okay, hold on. Let's figure this out because everyone's talking now. Right. We're on it. Okay. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to share the screen. We're going to jump back in at the pinnacle of the sermon. Let me figure this out. You know what's funny? This past week, I said to Stephen, I was like, what happens if one of our um, one of our internets go out, like in the middle of preaching or leading worship or something like that? And we were like, eh, we'll figure it out. We were ready. We were ready. I was I was ready to send everybody to breakout groups, but not was necessarily. Was that went out? Oh, Who well. knows? Can you mine see the screen now, everybody? Yeah. Okay, awesome. 
we're back on. So at the risk of minimizing all of this, forgiveness and reconciliation, it's like a gift that God sends us, sends us from Amazon, right? It's an actual box that's shipped from Amazon. But here's the deal. Somebody else paid for it. So somebody else shipped it. Somebody else delivered it to your front porch. You didn't do any of that. All of the work has been done to give you this gift, but you still have to open the door and accept it. You still have to accept the gift that God has given to you. And so in a few moments, if you feel like you've never like really done that and you don't even know how to do that, I'll tell you how you can do that in just a little bit. Now, let me raise a problem with all of this, a problem that maybe uh, you've wrestled with. Let me go to the next slide. There we go. A problem that maybe you've wrestled with, especially if you grew up in the church, because maybe you've heard over and over some of the things that I just mentioned. Maybe you've heard Jesus died for your sins. Jesus died in order to forgive you. Uh, Jesus died so that you could be reconciled with God. Maybe those ideas have lost their power and their meaning. Or maybe you've paused long enough to think about it and to ask the question, did it really have to be that way? I mean, couldn't God have forgiven me and reconciled with me without Jesus having to die? Have you ever asked that question? You see, I think this is the heart of the why did Jesus have to die question. Because if Jesus' death is only about forgiveness and reconciliation, couldn't God have forgiven us and reconciled us to himself without someone having to die, particularly his own son? Right? Have you ever thought about that? Couldn't God have, have done all of this without Jesus having to die? And when you've asked that question, or if I've asked it, here's probably the answer that you've gotten back. Maybe it's from a preacher. Maybe it was from a parent. Maybe it was from a book. Maybe it was even from a verse in the Bible. Somebody had to die. Somebody had to be punished for our sin. Somebody had to endure God's furious wrath. And you can understand where we might have these ideas or get these ideas because there's the whole Old Testament sacrificial system, right? Where animals are regularly being killed. And, and, and what does all that mean? Now, this fall, we're actually going to study that in depth. We're going to go through Leviticus and try to figure out what's going on there. But there's those passages. There's all the passages in the Old Testament where God seems angry. He seems like he's full of wrath because people, his people, keep rebelling against him. And then, of course, there's that courtroom language and those metaphors. And, and Paul leans heavily into the courtroom language in a couple of his letters. And when we focus on those, we tend to focus on this idea of a penalty and, and punishment. And somebody has to pay, right? I mean, what judge in their right mind in our culture today would look at a robber or a rapist? or a killer, and say, hey, you know what? I think we're just going to forgive you today. No, like we would not accept that. The courtroom idea says somebody has to pay, right? Somebody has to be punished. 
But when we apply that to God, that can begin to get deeply problematic because it means that we start to relate, relate to God primarily or only as an angry judge who's mad at us and who wants to kill us. And here's the good news today. He just got mad at Jesus and he killed Jesus instead. That's the good news to accept, right? And we all think that doesn't feel like good news, right? That God was so mad and angry, he had to kill somebody. And I'm just thankful it wasn't me, it was Jesus. That doesn't feel like good news. And it might be why you, stopped going to church or stopped reading your Bible or stopped listening to preachers a long time ago. And so today I want to tell you, I don't think these answers on the screen right now are good answers to the question of why did Jesus have to die? They don't really reflect with the fullness of what the Bible teaches. They don't reflect who God truly is the God that Jesus came to reveal to us. They, they lead us to relate to God in only one way, as an angry judge that needs to be appeased. And that can be really unhealthy and destructive. But here's the biggest problem. If these answers are the ones that we're hanging on to for why Jesus had to die, we're actually missing the most important answers. So why did Jesus have to die? Well, first, he died to offer forgiveness and reconciliation. The Bible is clear on that, but it wasn't just to offer forgiveness and reconciliation. Let me give you three other reasons for why Jesus had to die. Jesus also died to identify with our pain, our suffering, and our death. We live in a world full of pain and suffering and death, right? And when we experience those things, maybe in really small ways, maybe in medium ways, certainly in significant ways, we find comfort in knowing that Jesus knows exactly how we feel. He knows what it's like to have somebody betray him, one of his closest friends. He knows what it's like to be accused of something he did not do. He knows physical pain and suffering when we're going through that. He knows public shame. When you experience your deepest embarrassment and shame, Jesus knows how that feels. He was stripped naked and ridiculed in public. He knows the tears of his earthly mother and his heavenly father watching their son die. So could, could Jesus has, have forgiven us or reconciled us to the father without dying on the cross? Maybe. I don't know. But his plan and his purpose was not only to forgive us and reconcile us, but to enter the mess of human pain and suffering and death. And to say to every single one of us, when we are going through those things in our lives, I know exactly how you feel. And I am with you in your pain, in your suffering, and even in your death. Jesus also died to show us true love and sacrifice toward enemies. You see, Jesus came to basically say, yes, God sometimes must judge. And yes, sometimes God gets angry. When we keep 
hurting ourselves and each other over and over and over and over. How could he love us and not get angry at the way we treat one another? But ultimately, he loves his enemies. He loves those who keep rebelling against him. He turns the other cheek. He goes the extra mile. Jesus is willing to give up his own life, even for those who are crucifying him. And so we get to Good Friday, and Jesus could have zapped the Jewish leaders, right? He could have zapped the Roman authorities and the soldiers that were beating him up. He could have said, ha ha, you are wrong. I'm the son of God. You are the ones to be punished. You are the ones to be killed. And you are the ones to pay for all of your horrible crimes. He had every right in the world to do that. But he didn't. Because that would have communicated the opposite of who God is. That God doesn't actually love his enemies. God makes his enemies pay. That God is not a God of love. He's a God of revenge. And, and granted, sometimes we read the stories in the Old Testament, and we might conclude that that's what God is like. But Jesus comes, and Jesus gives his life on the cross to make it crystal clear to every single one of us. Here's who God really is. He's a God of love and mercy and sacrifice toward his enemies. Now, there's one more reason that Jesus died on the cross for us. He died to defeat sin and death. And, and this is actually at the center of God's purpose in human history. You see, it's not just that our sin damages our relationship with God, and so we need to be forgiven and reconciled. That's true. That does happen. But it's also that sin destroys us. Sin is like a disease that begins to eat away at our bodies and our hearts and our souls. Sin is like a, a set of chains that are wrapped around us and enslave us and make us do things we don't want to do. Paul talks about this in Romans 7. He says, look, I was at a point in my life where I would try to do all the right things all the time, and I just never seemed to could do them. I just couldn't do them well. I couldn't do them consistently. I couldn't do the things that I wanted to do. And then I would try not to do all the wrong things, and I couldn't stop myself from doing all the wrong things. And it's like there's this power that has a hold over me. It's like I'm enslaved to sin. It holds this power and this dominion over me, and I can't free myself from it. And the whole story of the Exodus in the Old Testament is about this, right? The people are in slavery to Pharaoh, and they're crying out to God from deliverance. And so when Jesus comes, he is reliving that entire story where God defeats the forces of Pharaoh, and he rescues Israel from physical slavery. But when Jesus comes, he's doing it not just for Israel, but for all of humanity and the forces that we need to be delivered from are the forces of sin and death, which hold us in slavery, which are destroying us. And we need to be rescued from that bondage. And so it's no surprise that Jesus goes to the cross on Passover. He's recalling that entire story in order to show us that he is rescuing us from the forces of sin and death. And how does he defeat those forces? He accepts the fullness of human sin and death upon himself. 
Think about that. The son of God becomes a human and then dies as a human. Which is why those words in the Apostles' Creed right in the middle are so important. He was crucified, died, and buried. He descended to the dead or to the place of death. And then he rose from the dead. He defeats sin and death by taking it all upon himself and then conquering it. And this is why Jesus had to die in order to liberate us from the power of sin and death over our lives. And so if you put your faith in him, that doesn't mean you don't sin anymore, right? We're still going to screw up and we're still going to mistreat ourselves and we're going to mistreat others. But it means that you're not a slave to sin anymore. You have the power of Jesus inside of you working to transform your heart, to transform your mind, to transform your soul, to transform your life. And and Jesus' defeat of death doesn't mean that our bodies won't get sick and die. But it means that we face death with a new hope. And that like Jesus, we will experience new life after death. So for you, which of these four reasons for why Jesus came to die on our behalf did you maybe need to hear today? Which of these purposes is personal for you? And what will you do about it? We're going to sing a song together right now. It's an old hymn. It's called Jesus Paid It All. Adam's going to lead us through it. And as we sing this song, I hope that you will embrace the words and make them your prayer and your declaration today.